I do believe that AI is an excellent tool to help monitor what is happening in reality. What we actually can observe is whether what people, governments or individuals, entrepreneurs saying is actually happening in terms of impact to sustainability. That information asymmetry, that power asymmetry is something that stands at the heart of the climate crisis. And by providing all of our work, all of our data, all of our code are free to use, And by that, we hope that we contribute a little bit towards reducing those power asymmetries and those information asymmetries that are so dramatic here. In the climate context, there is an urgent and important need of better measurement. Climate emergency requires transparent non-financial reporting system as well as reliable carbon reporting. From Queen Mary University of London, I am Dr. Tibisai Morgandi an associate professor in international energy law at the School of Law, where I teach courses in energy and climate law. At Queen Mary, I also chair the Climate Emergency Working Group, an interdisciplinary group delving into the various facets of the climate emergency and working towards sustainable solutions. And I'm Dr. Caterina Gennaioli, an associate professor in environmental economics at the School of Business and Management. I contribute as a member to the Climate Emergency Working Group. And at the School of Business, we are about to launch an exciting master in environmental analytics in September 2024. And this is Climate Game Changers, a podcast from the Climate Emergency Working Group where we bring together our academic disciplines and dissect two hot topics in climate solutions. In this episode, we ask the burning question, can artificial intelligence change the game? How can AI contribute to solving the climate emergency? Hi, Caterina. Hi, Tibisai. We're back, back in front of the mic, back in the studio with another burning topic. But this week, it's you in the driving seat. So, Caterina, AI has been in the news a lot lately. And as we are recording in the studio, Rishi Sunak has convened an AI summit in London. So this topic is increasingly gaining momentum. Uh, Yes, it is. Well, as I mentioned in our earlier episode, I'm an economist and I like the certainty of data. And AI is a topic everyone's been talking about lately. And the great thing is that AI is very good at measuring, processing and extracting information. Well, that's really interesting. I have to confess that as a lawyer, I am both thrilled and intimidated by AI. In our world, the world of law, AI is helping us process a lot of data, plus It's also helping us forecasting the outcome of a case, which I think is revolutionary. It almost makes us feel as having a crystal ball. Now, I know that economists already do a lot of crystal ball gazing Mm. with their models, whereas for lawyers, this is totally new. But how can AI play a role in addressing the climate crisis? Well, well, actually, macroeconomists are the masters of crystal ball gazing, <laughs> and AI can certainly assist them in doing a better job at forecasting. Uh, but going back to your question, well, I'm not an expert in AI, but what I certainly know is that in the climate context, there is an urgent and important need of better measurement. 
So the climate emergency requires, for instance, the integration of clear ESG objectives in business strategies. It also requires transparent non-financial reporting system as well as reliable carbon reporting. So how do we make sure that this reporting is accurate and reliable? And how do we make sure that businesses and policymakers are actually investing resources where climate risks are higher? How do we make sure businesses and policymakers do what they promise to do? Well, I guess to understand how, we should call in our guests. I'm very pleased to welcome Dr. Michal Nakmani and Dr. Natalia Efremova. I'm so excited to have two successful women here today. Uh, Michal was a former colleague of mine at uh, Grantham Research Institute, uh, LSE, and Natalia is a current colleague of mine at uh, Queen Mary. So Michal is the founder and CEO of Climate Policy Radar. Natalia is a lecturer at Queen Mary University, a senior research fellow in machine learning for agriculture in the Alan Turing Institute and co-founder of Deep Planet. So welcome. Thank you for having me, Katerina. Great to be here. Thanks for having us. So first of all, I'd like you both to briefly explain the work of Climate Policy Radar and Deep Planet. Uh, Michal, why don't you start? Thank you. Climate Policy Radar aims to organize, analyze, and democratize data on climate change policy. It's a mouthful. Let me explain it in about 30 seconds. In order to make a lot of good decisions on moving the needle on climate change, we need a lot of better policies. And in all of that, all of these decisions need to be informed and evidence-based which means we need to read a lot of things. And in reading a lot of things, we find ourselves standing in front of piles of very, very long PDF documents that are very messy to read. And often, when we're faced with such a difficult task, it means that we just don't do it, or we don't do it well, or it's really expensive to do it, so a lot of resources are spent. So we try to make sense of that. We try to put all of the documents in one place and translate them from all languages so they're more accessible and extract structure from them using machine learning and artificial intelligence and make them usable for all of the people who are trying to read long PDFs before they go to sleep. Wow, this sounds such a useful tool that you provide, Michal. I'm sure policymakers would welcome similar instruments in other sectors too. But turning to Natalia, why don't you tell us what the planet does? Thanks for the question, uh, Katarina. So in the planet, we work also on AI for climate change, but very different type of AI. So we focus on computer vision and satellite imagery. We try to inform farmers and policymakers about changing that are happening on the planet's surface, which are related to agriculture. So we're looking both at climate change mitigation and adaptation. So how to help farmers to reduce their negative impact on the land and how to inform their decision-making about adaptation to the climate change. We use publicly available satellite imagery, private satellite imagery from commercial satellites, and all available ground data that we can obtain from the farmers of our publicly available sources. So I'm curious here, you know, so let's go back a little bit and ask you both about your journeys, because, uh, you know, how I'm curious how you became interested in uh, climate environmental change and, uh, and also how you went from academia to launching a startup. How did that happen? In my case, um, 
I was working in academia for a long time. My background is in computer science and artificial intelligence. And for many years, I've been working as a uh, lecturer in computer science. And then I got interested in actually application of what I do to real world. Uh, in academia, there, there are little opportunities to make real impact on people's lives because the results of our work are usually academic papers. So I wanted to make something that people can actually look at and use that would be beneficial for their life. And that's how me and a uh, few of my uh, friends and colleagues came up with the idea uh, of Deep Planet to make impact on sustainability and climate change. Thank you. And Michaela? I think there are two merging paths for me. On one hand, the path of providing data to make decisions better. Somewhere between 25 and 30 years, I've been um, playing with aspects of that in various forms, in, in commercial and with uh, research institutes. And about 15 years ago, I started working on environmental issues. Uh, I uh, did a master's in energy and environmental management. I joined a research institute that was involved in policymaking and supporting governments through their greenhouse mitigation plans in early days. This is before the Paris Agreement. And when I started my PhD at, uh, at the Grantham Research Institute at LSE, very quickly I joined a research project that was aimed at informing legislators, parliamentarians, and people that uh, work in the legislative branches of their countries on climate laws, because they said, we want to make better climate laws but we don't know enough. And they commissioned LSC to write a small little booklet. And I ended up leading that project and it became this online uh, library or repository of all the climate laws and policies of every single country in the world. And at the same time, uh, natural language processing was exploding. This is maybe three or four years ago uh, after some uh, breakthroughs happened in that field. And I think the field was ripe already for understanding all of that messy field of documents. So uh, I jumped ship and uh, founded, uh, founded a startup. We will go back to, to your work at Grantham because, uh, as you remember, we shared a common research interest there, studying uh, policy adoption, policy diffusion. And so um, we'll go back to that. But um, Natalia and Michal, you, you, you both work towards fighting the climate emergency and, uh, you know, your work is grounded in the extensive use of AI. So you, Natalia, focus more on the adaptation and conservation sectors. So do you have some example of how the use of AI can improve the situation in the sectors? Agriculture is currently both one of the greatest contributors to climate change and it's also suffering the most from climate change. Therefore, the two ways how the farmers can change their agricultural practices and their agricultural management. What we're trying to do is to help them to make informed decisions. For example, when we look at the yields, how they're changing with the change of the temperature, we can understand um, through satellite imagery, through analysis of weather patterns, through the change of the precipitation, how the farmer can change the irrigation practices, the fertilization practices, how they can adapt to use fewer resources to keep their yields as they used to be, or even to increase the yields by using more sustainable inputs. At the same time, we help them to monitor the outputs in terms of the yields and in terms of the negative impact on land, whether their farming practices um, increase land degradation or maybe they pollute the waters. Uh, so we can help them measure all these features, all this impact in the natural environment 
around their farms, maybe to compare their practice of the, of the neighborhood farms or the climate um, mitigation strategies in the region, and we can suggest what they can do. So most recent um, trend is to monitor organic soil carbon and essentially all the carbon in the farm. We know that this is very, very important for monitoring the overall carbon in the region, for example. And there are a lot of carbon credits conversations happening, so they can be good and bad. So what we help to do, we objectively estimate the carbon content in the farm and trends towards change in this carbon content, whether it's increasing or decreasing, and we can take a look at it uh, at a long period of time from onset of satellite imagery, right? And this will help improve farmers improve what they do on their land to make their outputs better, to adjust to the policies or maybe contribute positively to these policies. Can I make a follow-up question here? So you apply these complex and sophisticated methodologies, like using fancy algorithms on satellite data. I'm very curious, how do you actually let farmers and other clients digest the information that you provide them? As many practitioners, farmers never trust what you tell them. So we have to actually make a test to prove them that actually the technology is working and what is uh, we're producing is actually correct. So we usually make a pilot run with them to predict what is happening on their land and they use this information to compare with actual data what happened. And if they're happy with the result, which they usually are, then can subscribe to the service and use the information in their actual practices. Turning to Michal, so your work at Climate Policy Radar targets governments and policymakers at all levels, right? Can you tell us a bit how the use of AI can, can improve policy decision making and also if you can provide some anecdotes or example, or is there any particular element that you would highlight? Our work targets governments, but not only in the traditional way. They are not our only users. If we want policy to change, We need to talk to the governments, both um, at federal and state level and local. We also need to talk to those or we need to address those who hold those to account. That could be civil society, that could be um, activists, that could be people taking governments to courts. And that also is the private sector because there is a really strong connection between the private and the public sector and we can't move one without the other. So when we say we, we target governments, it's really important to say that we target the policy-making process as one of the key processes. But we also target, for example, sustainable investment and the interaction and the interfaces that we have between sustainable investment and policies, because as you know, policies can enable and they can hinder sustainable investment and lending and insurance and all of the things that we need. So how does our work support policy-making? The answer to that is almost trivial, because every policymaking starts with some uh, mid-ranking civil servant writing an options paper. You can imagine that, right? They're, I don't know, 25 years old, they're sitting in their office, they have three days to give to their boss um, some, uh, how do I reduce emissions from transportation in, uh, in our cities? Or how do we do good agricultural practices that will fit in with our international commitments? So this mid-level um, civil servant sits and says, okay, what, where do I start? And they start Googling like crazy uh, sustainable transportation, or they remember that they went to a conference and somebody gave them an example or a presentation. And they usually will read what they have 
available to them and what is accessible to them and what they uh, in the language that they already speak. And it's important to mention here, there's a real strong justice angle here, because the more resourced a government is, the more access it will have to information. And of course, those are hit the hardest by climate change are the ones that usually don't have so much capacity within their government. So the trivial thing is that just providing access to information to start with already is a big deal, because otherwise people are control finding, you know, control find transportation, control find truck, control find road. And as humans, we have a status quo bias. It means if we don't have anything that will convince us to move from where we are, we will stay where we are. And where we are right now is not very good, as we all know, right? So if we want to move from there, we need to have very convincing evidence that will show us what others have done and how can we move and what are some good ideas and will move us from our fear that we're not the first ones to try this because that's a really scary thing, uh, mainly for governments. That's really where we begin. And of course, the more we make these things easy, so I'll, I'll go with the transportation example, control find road and control find uh, train are things that AI and machine learning can help greatly with. You design a method that will enable you to find all terms related to transportation and find and collate them in a useful way that will be a good start for that mid-ranking civil servant that we are imagining sitting and working very hard to write this options paper. That's really interesting. And I like this uh, also, you know, environmental justice uh, dimension in the sense that, you know, everyone can expect that uh, countries that are mostly hit by climate change uh, are the ones that are usually less equipped uh, as lower state capacity. And so, you know, the accessibility to the information tend to be scarce. So I think it's an incredible valuable tool. Thanks. It's it's important to say this is not only countries and, of course, sections within society as well. I'll give you an example from litigation. Uh, Dutch citizens decided to take Shell to court and to sue it for violating human rights. So you have a civil society organization that is made up of people who do not have a lot of money. And you have Shell, on the other hand, with lawyers, with an army of lawyers that can pay for a huge legal effort. That information asymmetry, that power asymmetry, is something that stands at the heart of the climate crisis. And by providing, and it's probably worth saying at this point, Climate Policy Radar is a not-for-profit organization. All of our work, all of our data, all of our code are open and free to use. And by that, we hope that we contribute a little bit towards mitigating those or reducing those power asymmetries and those information asymmetries that are, that are so dramatic here. It's funny you refer to this case because we talked about it in our previous episode and you seem to be saying that information is power. Is, is that the idea? You provide information in a neutral way and then people can do with that what they want. They might be using it for a good cause, but what if they use it for a bad cause? Sure. I mean, the theory of change, of course, is that good information, first of all, will not necessarily guarantee good results. Bad information or the lack of information will definitely guarantee bad results. That, I think, is worth noting. I don't think that Shell needs climate policy radar in order to find out who's doing what, right? They can afford it. But so many others that didn't have this opportunity before um, now have it. When we use transparency, when we uh, apply transparency, we are leveling the playing field. Everyone is now looking at the same data. You can say, I see an ant and I see an elephant. 
And uh, if you say it's an ant and I know it's an elephant, then I will have more ability to convince you that this is really important. Um, not that ants are not important, of course. They are critical parts of our, uh, uh, looking at Natalia, critical part of our uh, <laughs> ecosystem. No, that makes perfect sense. Natalia, what do you think about information as power? How does that relate to the information that, um, you know, where you extract as a result of your work? I completely agree that the information is power and only information can actually change bad practices that exist today and bad decision making. We aim to help with our information wherever we can. So in Michal's case, this is to all actors. In our in the planet's case, it's mostly farmers and policymakers. But uh, what I want to add to it is that we need to aim to combine all different data sources and different types of information. So in the work I'm d- that I'm doing and my colleagues are doing, we also try to make this data available. So the multitude of available, freely available sources, open source data that anyone can log in. So it's issued uh, by large institutions such as Alan Turing institutions, mm-hmm. um, a lot of agencies, governmental agencies, work on disseminating these informations, such as DEFRA in the UK. They help make this information available to all people. But I want to emphasize that um, initiatives such as Michal are very, very important to help reach those layers of population who don't naturally have access mm-hmm. to it. So we seem to have a convergence here, but Michal... Uh, you want to add something? Thanks. I want to add two points. First of all, I want to go back to your point about neutrality. We need to understand what that means. If you today say to, you know, put in your map application, I want to get from point A to point B, you can say the map is neutral. The map has the data. The map, you know, knows that this is the distance or whatever. But the map doesn't know if you want to get there in the shortest way in the fastest way, with a toll road, without a toll road, with the highest emissions, with the lowest emissions? Do you want to walk? Do you want to take a train? These are decisions that, let's call them ethical decisions. Mm-hmm. These are That's a framework that only you know what are your preferences. So the data is neutral. How you apply that data is not neutral at all. And especially with policy, there are so many different circumstances, um, geographic and socioeconomic, sociopolitical, that we need to take into account, that we need to remember that nothing is ever neutral and there is never one right answer to get to somewhere. You can decarbonize very, very quickly while violating uh, human rights in a way that is uh, unthinkable. And how we do that is far from neutral. Climate Policy Radar aims to stay in the neutrality space but to flag and to say this is something that you need to apply responsibly and to make it available for you to understand what are the different considerations. But someone else will have to decide because that is, that's where neutrality ends. The second thing is Natalia's point about interoperability of data. When we say interoperability, it means how can different data sets work together? So if I'm thinking about policies about agriculture, they can fit with uh, Deep Planet's data and say, okay, here is in a certain geography the policies that have been applied. That means that certain technologies can come in, certain technologies cannot come in because there's a rule against them or because there's a tax on them that doesn't allow it. Those are, those are contexts that set the stage for what is possible and not possible in certain places. And those are contexts for um, later what will be possible and not possible. So 
all of these uh, examples of how we merge data together, and that's a really, really complicated technical problem, and a very expensive one, if I may add, mm-hmm. is really important to, uh, to nail. Michal, I want to go back to where we were working together at the Grant Am Research Institute, LSE. So we, again, we shared this common research interest and on climate policy adoption and uh, diffusion study from different ga- angles. And you were managing uh, the data collection that led to the creation of the GLOBE uh, data set, uh, now Climate Change Laws of the World, uh, in partnership with, by the way, among others, Sabin Center for Climate Change law at Columbia University. We have in the other episode of the podcast, Caroline, uh, Carolina Arlotta, which is a fellow at the Sabin Center. So um, there is kind of a link there. So my question to you, Michal, is uh, in which way do you think uh, your current work at Climate Policy Radar can facilitate and improve also research uh, in this topic? Absolutely. I imagine and hope that many academics are listening to our uh, to our <laughs> podcast today. So hello, academics. I feel your pain. Uh, <laughs> and I mean very specifically the pain of collecting data, wrangling it into your uh, your desired format, asking what questions should I ask to this data? And sometimes, you know, this, you know, these questions when you start. But halfway through the data, you say, ah, something really interesting is emerging from the data. Now I need to go back and map all the 30 articles I already read. Now I have to ask the same question to them. So that's a really difficult practice because we try to do a top-down approach and a bottom-up approach. What, what do we see from the data and what can we impose on the data and all of these questions. And it's expensive and it's complicated to collect data. So we all know that. We very much hope that our tools that are, uh, again, open, I think user-friendly, <laughs> I leave that to you to say, and please uh, let us know if there's anything we can do to make your lives better. Um, we'll help you with um, the, the aggregation and with the collection and with the analysis of some of those tools. Because if we take, for example, um, someone researching green hydrogen, they would need to figure out where do I, where do I start looking and Googling things is not, you know, Um, you know, is limited or go, even going to Google Scholar. So looking and reading and saying and, you know, just typing in green hydrogen and finding all of the policies, strategies, NDCs, um, long-term strategies, and all of the submissions to the UNFCCC that were submitted by um, every single com- country in this world, being able to find that very quickly and to jump to the exact passage where you can see it highlighted, that is uh, hopefully support to your... Um, your research. Our tools can also uh, support with, let's call them, research assistant capabilities. AI is getting pretty good at summarizing text. We can draw maps, we can put timelines, we can do graphs, all of these things that let you do the, the heavy lifting of the analysis. Great. That's a great news for, for us, uh, <laughs> academics. So, okay. So um, uh, going back to, to Natalia, and also th- that is an open question to you, uh, Michal, as well. So AI, we understood, can improve decision-making by key actors, so from entrepreneurs, uh, farmers, to governments, local authorities. So, and these same actors are under growing pressure by the public. So young generation, green movements, and, uh, you know, they want them, they put pressure for them to do the right thing. My question to both of you is, can AI help to keep these actors accountable for their pledges uh, regarding, for instance, carbon emission reduction and conservation action? Uh, I think this is an excellent question and very important topic that we need to address. I do believe that AI is an excellent tool to help monitor uh, 
what is happening in reality because a lot of claims related to climate change are extremely difficult to track. For example, things like avoided deforestation mm. in terms of the carbon accounting is a thing that you really cannot observe unless you have access to the plans to the specific region, whether these plans were approved, where they changed in the due course. So th these are all information that we don't really have access to. But what we actually can observe is whether what people, governments or individuals, entrepreneurs saying is actually happening or happened in terms of actual impact on land, actual impact to sustainability. So all available information of uh, Earth observation and ground data helps us to go back up to 20 years to analyze what had happened and compare different periods of time. For example, we can we can monitor carbon emissions themselves. We can monitor carbon emissions from a plot of land. We can monitor carbon emissions from the whole regions, for example. We can monitor if a particular carbon emission reduction policy or action was actually implemented in reality and whether, which which is very important whether it was reversed or not. Mm. So a lot of people say that they implement some actions, but they stick to it to a year or two, and then they just stop it. But that's exactly why the monitoring, consistent monitoring is very important and can help us hold accountable all the actors involved in this action if, they, for example, um, their climate change related actions were reversed or there some risk emerged on the plot of lands. For example, someone decarbonized their farm, but um, they increased carbon emissions in the other farm. So if we implement global monitoring, it will help us to avoid such situation and reduce risks associated with carbon accounting. I think it's really important to say that AI enables us to do things faster as we're racing against the clock to, um, to halt emissions, and it can conduct hugely complex calculations and modeling that humans either cannot uh, do or cannot do in time or in the resources they have usually available to them. And I think everything that Natalia said is really important and, uh, and, and just shows us how complicated these uh, monitoring efforts are and these risk evaluation um, and opportunity evaluation as well, not just risks. And those are, uh, those are critical things. And AI is just a tool here to do things faster and better. Uh, and that's a lens worth saying and demystifying a little bit what AI is. It's a big computer that does statistics really, really well. So I do research work on uh, climate policy evaluation, and I'm interested in understanding the effects of climate policy, including its potential unintended effects. So do you think that the tool that Climate Policy Radar makes available and potentially combined with other data sources can help to get insight about the actual effectiveness of climate policy on what works and what doesn't? You asked the million dollar question or the trillion dollar or the planet question. How can we see if what we're doing actually works? And when we ask what works, we need to say, okay, we did intervention X and this was the result. We had a result Y. And often we think very anecdotally. So, oh, they tried that and this was the result, therefore this works. But as we know, correlation does not mean causation. And we have shied away from doing, from taking a little more systematic approach to this. So hopefully, as we start collecting more structured uh, and more systematic evidence about 
policy interventions, policy commitments by governments, and by the way, in the future, by corporations as well, in the not too far future, I, I think, and hope and plan. But if we start putting these interventions against real world data, for example, satellite imagery, for example, uh, emissions monitoring, for example, health or mortality uh, data, maybe we can start seeing some patterns. Maybe we can start asking some questions about what works and what doesn't work. It doesn't guarantee that we have the answers yet, but we have to start taking a more systematic approach. You, you spoke about causation and, you know, I can't resist the temptation to ask you a question about that because as lawyers, we are obsessed with causation. And by that, I mean attributing a particular act or omission to a particular stakeholder to then be able to hold them accountable. And by that, I mean legally accountable. So science is at the basis of this. We cannot show that the emissions caused in one country may be responsible for causing, um, you know, climate change effects on the other side of the world, unless we have the science showing that. So How do you think AI can play a role in this? You already elaborated on this a bit, but if you could expand on that, and how do you think you might be able to help us in holding major emitters accountable? Uh, you ask a fascinating question. L- let me uh, ask you an open question back. I'm not expecting an answer. But do we, first of all, attribution science has, has made great leaps in the, in the last uh, few years and the ability to talk about how man-made changes and interventions in the natural systems are leading to increased emissions and that leads to increased likelihood for extreme weather events, for example, and therefore the damages associated with these extreme weather events or with the slow onset effects like sea level rise, how they, they can be attributed back to the emitters. And that's a really fascinating uh, kind of legal stream. Do we really have to prove each one of those in order to hold the fossil fuel companies to account or to stop them from continuing to do this? Do we really need every single case to prove again and again? Or can we say, mm, I think we have enough information now and maybe it's time to stop fossil fuels and move on. So, and I think that it's a very interesting challenge for the legal community as they are uh, using existing frameworks in order to face challenges that are new and excruciatingly hard. So that's an open question, mm. um, maybe a little philosophical, <laughs> but um, lawyers have to deal with the evidence that they have in front of them How do we deal systematically with evidence, of course, uh, is made better by tools that help you read stuff faster and, and easier. And I, all of, yeah, so. <laughs> I like that you throw the ball back to us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Natalia, I don't know if you wanted to add anything on these. Yeah, it was just a minor comment, but I think it's very important to understand when we're talking about accountability and what is happening on a large scale. Uh, well, AI is just a tool and in fact it's not one tool is a multitude of different tools with different purposes mm-hmm. and different application and different ways that impact our lives and aggregate data and summarize data for example computer vision is absolutely different thing from natural language from processing you can merge them together but still it is like a number of tools and they are there to help and to inform decision-making, but they never create a data or they m- never make decisions for humans. Mm-hmm. So what they actually can do is to inform scientists, to inform policymakers, to in- inform the people who are accountable, 
to make better decisions, but they will never actually make this decision. So we're, we're parts of ecosystems. And we're not the only part. We're an important part, but we're definitely not the only part. We need the storytellers. We need the artists. We need the advocates. We need the activists. We need the lawyers. We need the scientists. And this is a collective effort. And I think it's always really important to say that. None of us will cut it on our own as far, you know, as much as we think that our solution will save the world. Uh, and that's true for all sectors and for all practices and for, um, yeah, we have, a, we have a long-term effort yeah. that uh, has to be a collective one. And that is also what we believe in, is the philosophy behind a climate emergency working group, bringing together different disciplines and trying to collaborate to solving the climate crisis. But yeah. Katerina, hand back to you. So finally, we've heard a lot about how AI can make positive changes. So what do you think can we do to increase the use of AI in this global challenge? That's an excellent question. Um, as we all know, AI is extremely uh, interesting, but also extremely difficult subject. And many people are afraid of AI or the consequences of using AI. And that's why I believe that education is extremely important. And uh, this is what we do in academia and specifically in uh, Queen Mary. Next year, we're launching a master's program on environmental analytics to teach students how to apply AI specifically in the context of climate change. So this program uh, will start in September 2024 and it has three co-directors including Katerina, myself and Zeynep Gorguc and um, we will aim to both uh, teach uh, people about economics of climate change and data science of climate change. Thank you Natalia uh, and just to add in the in our program offered by the Department of Business Analytics at the School of Business and Management, we envisage the opportunity for students to engage and collaborate with companies and agencies in the public and private sector and the most imaginative startups, including Climate Policy Radar and Deep Planet. So stay tuned as in September 2024, we are launching a truly exciting master program at Queen Mary. And it's a great initiative. So stay tuned. So, Michal and Natalia, it has been an absolute pleasure having you on Climate Game Changers. Thank you. Thank you both for having us. And that's it for this episode of Climate Game Changers. Thanks to our guests, Michal Nachmani and Natalia Fremova. Thanks to our producer, Jolene Goffin at Rethink Audio. And thanks to the Institute of Humanities and Social Sciences that established the Climate Emergency Working Group at Queen Mary. If you like the episode, please follow us, tell your friends, and let us know what you would like us to discuss in future episodes. We are thrilled to be bringing the work from the Climate Emergency Working Group at Queen Mary University of London into the world of podcasts. We hope to be back with more episodes in 2024, so stay tuned. I am Dr. Tibisai Morgandi. And I'm Dr. Caterina Gennaioli. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we look forward to being back in the studio in 2024.